Welcome to the Turtle Shell Therapy Institute, a podcast made to help you learn how to feel more comfortable inside and outside of your shell. I'm your host, James Nee Hundley. For this episode, I'm beyond excited to welcome back Karen Doyle Buckwalter. Karen joined me before to discuss attachments impact on caregiving and the adult attachment interview. Go check that episode out if you haven't already. Karen is a licensed clinical social worker, registered play therapist, supervisor, author, teacher, podcaster, psychotherapist, and consultant. Karen's joining me today to share her expertise on the intersection of attachment and trauma. And since she joined me last, she started a new venture, Carolina Attachment and Trauma Services. Karen, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to have you back. Yes, it's wonderful to be here again. I had so much fun the the last time we were able to chat on the podcast, so I'm really thrilled to be able to be back. Yes, and and thank you for mentioning my new venture. Yeah, it was almost 30 years at Chadock, so it was it was time to change things up a little bit. Um, and so, yes, as you mentioned, I opened Carolina Attachment and Trauma Services, where I'm doing a lot of teaching, consulting, and supervision, and still some direct clinical practice. So yeah, thank you. Oh, that's awesome. No, good for you. I'm really happy that you're that you're branching out. And yes, that's a lot of awesome and needed services that you're offering. Yeah. Well, the intersection of attachment and trauma. So I know we were talking a little bit before the we started recording that this yeah. is a topic that not a lot of people really seem to understand how how they intersect you know, what yes. is trauma? What is attachment? Yes, yes. And I think, you know, lately, we're, there's a lot of information out there, misinformation. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes, I think there's periods of time. I mean, we always have pop psychology and self-help books, and, and some of that is fine. But it seems like there's certain times in our history where misinformation is really exploding, And I feel like Mm -hmm. that has been happening with information about attachment and information about trauma. So I think a good way for us to to first start out is, you know, talking about each of them separately before we get to the intersection of them. Perfect. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And And I will say, in a way, it's a good thing that we're having lots of information because we we do want awareness and education about these things. But I have found exactly. that whenever you do have that, the pendulum often kind of swings too far into like, wait a minute, like that's not what we were saying. So, you know, just starting out with attachment, one of the first things I like to point out is that there are two bodies of research about attachment. And I see a lot of people conflating the two of these and using terms from one for the other. And so the two bodies of research, one, which is more my area of expertise from the developmental sciences, developmental psychology, actually, mm-hmm. developmental psychology, looking at, at attachment and how that forms between babies and their caregivers. Um, That all comes out of developmental psychology, uh, where a lot of early attachment research started. That's Mm -hmm. also the discipline where the adult attachment interview evolved from, because the adult attachment interview is interrelated with the strange situation. So we have that 
chunk of information. Then we have the social sciences, where there has been a lot of study about romantic relationships and romantic, pair, romantic pairings in adulthood. I mean, some of the common folks that have written about that are Hazen and Shaver, um, where they have written about adult connections from a social science perspective, like how we as adults are connecting with one another. And those are two completely separate bodies of research from two completely separate disciplines of science. And there are some parts of them that seem similar, but there are other parts that really aren't. Like one example that I hear a lot is in um, looking at developmental science, when we look at adult classifications, we have um, dismissing, preoccupied, secure, autonomous, and unresolved. Well, I will hear people saying, oh, they have an anxious attachment. Well, you know, in my developmental science AAI perspective, like that's not a choice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, like, so, yeah. so, you know, and, and I think that I bring this up because I think as clinicians, we want to um, be careful about overgeneralizing terms and just kind of throwing them around because sometimes yeah. that causes us to lose credibility in the academic community, first of all. Um, like, we don't want to be out there saying things where it's really obvious to someone who really knows this literature that we kind of don't know what we're talking about. Um, and, you know, we, we just want to have our facts straight, right? Like, we, right. we want to be, if we, if we are um, sharing specific things from science or journal articles, like we sometimes do with our clients, we want to be doing that true to the science and accurately. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. So, so that's my first little soapbox, you know, that there are two, two big chunks of, of literature from different places that don't really mean the same thing. <laughs> it's important because I don't think that gets talked about ever. It's really kind of just, I don't know, yeah, what I joke with my clients is I feel like how it gets talked about a lot is it's very like, there's only four kinds of people. <laughs> and you fit yes. in a box and it's just it's not that's such a over generalization of attachment theory and the different bodies of research yes yes and you know actually I, I feel like you're bringing up another really important point that we need to also keep in mind as clinicians we look for individual differences and nuance yeah researchers look for like ways to put people in broad categories Mm -hmm. So like they're, because what, they can't, we can't have, you know, 652 classifications of attachment. <laughs> you right. know, we're, right. But exactly. we're probably going to see 652 different manifestations in people that we work with, you know, there, there's nuance and there's difference and there's ways these things are expressed. So we're all about, you know, what is this? what is different about this particular person right in front of me? We're not sitting there thinking, okay, how could I categorize this person with two other people I saw this week? Like that's what, right. like, that's right. not what right. we're doing. <laughs> right. Right. You know, so we also have to be careful there that we don't get so married to research that we start to overgeneralize like you're saying. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, gl I'm glad that you mentioned that. Um, none of us really fits in a special box that a researcher came up with, like totally, really, you know, so we're talking right. you know, overriding characteristics, you know, just like. I think many of us would say the DSM, you know, a person can have a yeah. certain um, diagnosis in the DSM, but they could look very, very different from another person. Absolutely. And, and like you said, too, the intention is different in the context of the yes. researchers have yes. a different thing, goal that they're trying to do. Yes. Whereas we're yes. assessing. They're looking people. for yeah. sameness and we're yeah. constantly acknowledging difference. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I love that. Yeah, yeah. So, and that actually, you know, the mentioning of the DSM is kind of a good segue into the next thing I want to say about attachment. And that is that it is not a mental health disorder or diagnosis. Right. Right. It is a way of being in close relationships in a particular kind of relationship in childhood. It's generally, you know, our relationship with our parent. And then in adulthood, it's the relationship with a romantic partner. And, you know, you can have an insecure attachment classification and be doing well in life. It, it, it's yeah. not a DSM classification. You know, maybe you feel like, oh, I would like to feel a little safer or closer in my deepest interpersonal relationships. But that doesn't mean that you carry a psychiatric diagnosis. So right. I think that's another thing to be very clear about that. I think sometimes people are over pathologizing attachment difficulties mm -hmm. or challenges. Mm -hmm. it, is, it is an adaptive way of being in relationships that you learn very early on. It's not a exactly. disorder. It is not a disorder. Exactly. And I don't think we can say that enough because I think, and I think that's part of like the, and I, I don't know if you'd say that's part of the medical model in our society or this kind of mm -hmm. either or thinking things are either mm -hmm. good or bad, but like you said, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's an adaptive process. And, yes. and even culturally, like even those conversations, I remember early in my career blew my mind that like, we can look at like, like a, a different culture, like the Japanese culture and say, oh, they're all avoidantly attached based on an American perspective mm -hmm, of what's mm -hmm. what's a quote-unquote healthy attachment yes yes and it it, yes. it their secure attachment and the behaviors that produce that in one culture could be different in another culture yes you know so there it, there has been cross-cultural research of norming of the strange situation in the aai but again the behaviors and and how this all comes about may look very different. You know, yeah. what seems to promote security in one culture may look different, even though it produces security in us doing it differently. So, you know, these are all really, really important things. And the other thing I really want to point out is, you know, Bowlby said we form this internal working model based on our relationship with our parents as um, a baby, as a young child, and that it tends um, to remain that way, but it's not unchangeable. That, that, right. That's not what he, like, this is not like written in stone. If right. you had um, an insecure 
um, attachment relationship with a caregiver, then you're going to be insecure at adult or something like that, like that, it, it can change it. It, there's a tendency for it to remain the same though. Like, I don't want to deny that. Um, but I, we would all be kind of hopeless in what we're doing if it's like, well, you know, that's what I was at 18 months. So, you know, there's nothing to be done. Um, the other thing that, that that's misunderstood too, is that a baby can have a different attachment relationship. They can be rated, you know, um, as secure with one parent and fall into an in, an insecure classification with another parent. But mm-hmm. in adulthood, somehow these like merge and crystallize into one. So when I do an AAI with a person, I'm not they, I'm not saying, oh, well, with your mother, you were this, and with your father, you were this. There is an overriding consolidation somehow that happens where they now have an overriding predominant strategy. So that's also different and something some people, you know, may not be aware of. So I think these are all really important things for us to keep in mind. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. So in terms of looking at trauma now, because, you know, our title is the intersection between attachment and trauma, but, and wanting to delineate some of this information before we interface them. I think there's so much misunderstanding about trauma, James. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, I think in an effort to, have people understand, like I was saying earlier, um, and this happens all the time. I remember this happening with ADHD. Oh my gosh, everybody has ADHD now. Then I remember it happening with childhood bipolar disorder, which is extremely rare, but it, it becomes what I call, you know, the, the diagnosis du jour, you know, it's like, well, Mm -hmm. now everyone, we see it everywhere. You know, it's like, it's like, when you get a new car, then you suddenly see that car everywhere, or, you know, yeah. it's like, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's like, or you learn, you, or the old adage, you know, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, like, you know, it, it you know, kind of what's yeah. right in front of us at the time can color our view. And this seems to be an unfortunate outcome of when we increase education about a certain thing, then suddenly, that diagnosis or that problem is sort of being slapped on everybody. Yeah. Um, Yeah. yeah. And, and I, when that, when it comes to trauma, I think there's a lot of problems with doing that. I mean, first of all, I think that it diminishes the experience of people who, who actually have PTSD. So let's first talk about that. You can experience a traumatic event and not develop PTSD. Right, right. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. Like people have really horrible things happen to them and they're okay afterwards. Right. And that depends on a lot of things. And in in fact, it's going to depend on, you know, some of our discussion today related to the intersection with attachment. But I think there's um, a lot of, to use the word again, conflating something really traumatic happened to me or terrible versus something happened and I have now developed PTSD. I now have Mm -hmm. nightmares. I am now afraid to leave my house. I am now afraid to drive a car. 
Um, mm -hmm. I become terrified when I hear or see um, a man with a beard, you know, whatever yeah. it is. Okay. Yeah. So those are two really different things. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And I think our language too, I think language does this. It's, yeah, this idea where now we use the term bipolar to describe anybody who might be having like a shift in mood or, right, yeah, or they're traumatized, you know, or just saying like, oh, that traumatized me when, you know, you're just, you, you, you weren't really traumatized. I can't think of a good example. Like, um, no, no, the, like about know, your yeah. hair, like a bad haircut yeah. or, yeah. you know, yeah, I'm traumatized I mean, by the haircut. Yeah, yes. exactly. Or, or yeah. I often hear, and this one hits home for me because I, um, have, um, some, a family member that I, I care about that has OCD mm. and, you know, my pet peeve is when people like, they're very fastidious about their house. They like a clean house and they say, oh, I'm OCD about it. And I'm like, you have no idea. Yeah. Like right. OCD is, can be so crippling. It's not about being, it's, it's not fastidious. It's, it's, right. you know, I am, I have these repeated checking behaviors where I have to check the stove 20 or 30 times to the point that I can't leave for work. Or, you know, I, mm. I'm driving along the road and there's a bump and I have to go back there multiple times in the middle of the night because I'm convinced I hit someone or, I, you know, there's, there, you know, the, the rituals and the checking behaviors and things like this, it's not that I like my house nice and neat. Now that could be a part of it, like taken to the extreme. Like, you know, maybe I, I can't eat because I'm so afraid right. of germs. Okay. That's different, but yes. yeah. So we do have that. And I, I think as mental health professionals, it's important for us to speak up about this because it does trivialize minimize the experience of those who are actually suffering with the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And it also perpetuates misinformation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I, I see it a lot with, I think because of the realms I work in, I see a lot of, a lot of that with autism. That was a really like, a lot of people thought either they or their child was, was autistic. And when I really like, I would meet with the kid and be like, I mean, you can get them evaluated, but that's based on everything I'm hearing. Some of this sounds more like a, like a trauma response or some of this yes. sounds like something else other than autism. Um, I also just hear the terms like narcissist is one that I think is really hot right now. A term yes. that's thrown around a lot, narcissism, uh, borderline tra mm -hmm. like, traits. I think those get thrown along to, to your point. It really diminishes the disorder mm -hmm. and, and perpetuates the, and the misinformation. And the pain that someone can be in, you know, yes. who, who, who isn't being able to get to work because they yes. can't stop checking the lock and yes. the stove versus I really like my house to be neat. I mean, these are very right. different. Um, one person is truly suffering and being impaired in their life. And um, yeah, so, yeah. So then getting back to the trauma diagnosis. So there can be a traumatic event and then a person may not develop PTSD. We want to keep those separate. And um, we know that there are some specific reasons that a person does not develop PTSD. And one of them is the type of support that they have after the event yes. or even during the event. Right. So um, that 
if, and, and this is where attachment can come in. I mean, one of the, and this is point number one of the interface would be attachment is a resiliency factor for trauma. Mm -hmm. It's a protect, let's say it's a protective factor for yes. trauma. Yeah. So I um, heard a quote once and I would attribute it if I could, um, might've been Susan Johnson. Um, and it was, Trauma is not about what, the actual event, but whether or not you have someone to run to mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as a, you know, oh my God, this happened. This is, a, you know, if, if you can run into the arms of another who provides you safety, that is very different than yes. going into perhaps a uh, being alone or going into a troublesome relationship where you often feel anxious and fearful. There was some research done after 9-11, looking at the survivors. So, you know, these people who are like running out of the building, watching, you know, other people dying. And they found a lower incidence of PTSD when people had a more stable home life. Mm -hmm. So there was a mm -hmm. correlation there and that that's what I'm talking about, a protective factor. So if yeah. you look at that quote I shared earlier, you know, they ran out of the building terrified and had a safe place to run home to. Yeah. And as a result, it did not affect them the same as somebody running from that area and maybe going home to extreme stress or domestic violence or um, lots of stress about finances, like, like lots of things. Um, and so this is where that secure person, that secure relationship, you know, op this, if, if we're going to look at this optimal relationship where it's a place that we feel safe and secure and protected. And so that is how secure attachment becomes a protective factor in preventing PTSD. This is a really important, I love the example you gave because I talk to a lot of people and I feel like I do a lot of education around how security and resiliency does not mean that you do it all alone. And mm. I think that's a product of American culture, this idea of independence being an ideal. Because, mm -hmm. well, I had a client I had been working with for a while where they were really struggling with this idea of what you were just saying, thinking that, that that's codependence and that security means... I could just go through unbothered and handle it on my own, which I think can, that can be the case in some situations, but to your point, security and resiliency doesn't mean that I'm just an Island that can just handle everything on my own. Yes. Yes. Like we are not wired to do that. And right. so, um, okay, James, like you're, I, I, I would imagine, you know, um, right now if, Alan Sharif was listening to you. He'd be like applauding what you said because when I when I had him on my podcast, um, we were talking about he had he had, he has written a book now uh, about his own history and and he has he 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 had a difficult childhood, but when you're an attachment researcher, you don't write about that, right? Like you write your right. research, you, you write right. your famous Minnesota longitudinal study. <laughs> and, and, but now that he's retired, you know, he, he decided to, to write this um, book. Um, and 
Um, one of the things that we, he talked about in the podcast was, um, and I have to get into like a real quick detail here for this to make sense. So in the adult attachment interview, we have a classification called earned secure. And what it yeah. means is that looking at the scores of the loving care that you got from your parents, because in the AAI, we actually like score things um, and your parents have to reach a certain threshold of loving care for you to be in the secure attachment category. Okay. Well, what happened was there were some people that a researcher would say perturbed the coding system because they had a lot of other indices of attachment, but that loving score was lower than it was supposed mm. to be. So what, what, what happened here? I mean, probably Alicia Lieberman would say, well, there was an angel in the nursery. There was somebody else there yeah. that provided that for them, even though the parent didn't. Okay, so, so this earned secure would be, you, have, you um, have secure attachment as assessed by the adult attachment interview, but it, it's sort of an anomaly because your parents' loving scores weren't high enough to produce that. So something else produced that. We don't think it was your, you know, th this is the idea. So what, and, and we love therapists, we love the insecure category because that's our, that's our work. Like we yeah. are how, like somebody that maybe for whatever reason, you know, their parents were unavailable and it could like, I never want to blame parents, you know, they could have been depressed or whatever they were going through, but Sorry. something they weren't able to be available in a way that the, the baby felt secure. Um, but, but we want to believe that just what I was saying earlier, this is yeah. like not a permanent unchangeable thing. Okay. So when we were talking about that, that wonderful, beautiful earned secure classification, um, Dr. Shroof said, I don't like the name of it because it makes it sound like you do it yourself. Mm. And that's not, yeah. that's yeah. not what it means. It means yeah. somebody else was available to you. Yeah. In a way that, yes. um, that impacted you and, um, allowed you to develop a secure representation of attachment because of your experiences with that person. It's not like you just sat over in a chair and we're like, okay, I'm doing A, B, or C now here by myself and right. now I'll be right. right. So, isn't, <laughs> yeah. so that I, I was like, he's like, and well, it, it, it's especially interesting to me because Mary Mean was, is, you know, her background and her early studies were in linguistics and she's so precise <laughs> about, language and so i'm like gosh I, it's interesting that that's what she called it so yeah um and uh yeah so that it's not being an island that that's not what it is um, right right we all need that i mean i guess some theory would call it like a correct like corrective experiences yeah um, yes yeah yeah. Safely. yeah 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 and um you know, I was around for all the codependent no more and all of the Melanie Beatty stuff. And I think she does have some, you know, I think that concept within drug and alcohol literature was helpful. Um, when you're, when you're in a real, a lot of that comes out of the addiction literature and really needing to recognize that you can't control an addict. 
like mm-hmm. partners really that that mm-hmm. is an important message for partners but you know like we were saying then sometimes it almost goes too far like we're not we're not saying don't ever rely on people like right. what like that's right. no no that's not the, 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 that's not I, that's not what she that's meant what we're either. going for yeah no no exactly. no no yeah. so yeah so um all right so so that um opportunity or um, possibility of having somebody to go to somebody to run to um and part of that is related to that helps calm one's nervous system because we know um, one of the things that produces PTSD is the prolonged elevated nervous system um, yes. being activated. Um, so, yeah, so that's another thing about attachment. If we know that prolonged eleva- elevation of the nervous system um, can be correlated with then developing PTSD. So what do we know about a secure relationship? They what do they do? They co-regulate you. Yes. So they yes. help bring you down. Now, granted, mindfulness and deep breathing and these other things, they can do that. Uh, but, um, you know, if you've just had something really horrible happen to you, it's a little hard to be like, oh, you know, let's let's do I got to make sure I do my mindfulness exercise so I don't develop PTSD. Uh, exactly. Exactly. And you know, my early, all my early childhood training taught me, well, one, you can't learn to self-regulate unless you've experienced co-regulation. Yes. And I think also to the point you're making, there are some things where we're not really supposed to self-regulate over. Maybe we need some co-regulation no, when no. something really actually traumatic happens. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so again, that's where this attachment relationship comes in is somebody that I feel safe with, yes, but they're also somebody that knows me and and can help me calm down, kind of knows what I need when I'm scared and anxious. Just like the mother who knows what the baby needs without asking. You know, some of us are um, blessed, fortunate, I don't know what we want to call it, to be in a relationship that's so close that that person can anticipate our needs and kind of sometimes even know what we need before before we know what we need, um, you know, in a helpful way, not in a way of trying to usurp your autonomy. Um, And so that's where that also comes in with attachment. A lot of my work, as you know, has been in the field of foster care and adoption. And another example that I share with people in terms of this protective factor of attachment and how it can help reduce the likelihood of PTSD. I am saying that. That's what I'm saying. Secure attachment can reduce the likelihood of PTSD. I'm not saying if you're securely attached, you can't develop PTSD. But um, so the example I I sometimes share is, you know, if I'm a child in foster care and, um, you know, I've obviously experienced some kind of abuse or neglect or something that led to removal to the home, let's from the home. Let's put aside some of the pieces that unfortunately, sometimes that can be related to race or other things. But let's say, you know, that you experience some time, some racism, I should say. Um, But let's let's say you actually did experience something, you know, traumatic enough to have you removed from your home, and then you go into foster care, and then you're bumped to another home, and you're another home. 
And at the age of, you know, seven years old, it's really tragic, but both your parents die in a car accident. Mm -hmm. So let's compare that to a child that up until this car accident happened, they lived with their parents and they had a stable and secure relationship for you know seven years these seven years they were in one home they were with parents who took care of them who they had a secure attachment with well you know what guess who is going to weather like one of the most tragic things in the world the loss of a parent guess who's going to weather that better the kid that had stable and secure uh, experiences early on and yes. had yes. maybe a, they're, they're both, of course, that's like a horrible thing. But for, for children who are in foster care, who've had often traumatic experiences and repeated attachment disruptions, they have the double whammy, like yeah. possibly disorganized, very likely insecure attachment and trauma repeated right. trauma right right so that's another way that we can see you know of course like that yeah. child is going to be impacted like much more deeply feel much more hopeless because they're already in kind of a scared and hopeless state based on what's been happening exactly. to them right exactly exactly yeah. there's no stable foundation for that right. one child yeah. right and so those early connections that form that stable yes. foundation can really make a difference in terms of how these things are going to affect us later. I also think even in, um, so e even in therapy, like um, when, you, when you think about doing, somebody's coming to you for trauma treatment, okay? Yep. Like they, let, let's say they, they, they definitely have been diagnosed with PTSD. It's interfering with their life. They're coming to you specifically around how this trauma is affecting the rest of their life. And they have an internal representation of secure attachment from their childhood when they come to you for therapy. Well, what Bowlby said is that internal representation that we form, that internal working model, it's what we think about ourselves and of the world and about other people. So mm -hmm. if a person with secure attachment, James comes to you for their trauma and they come to you thinking, you're probably gonna help me because I had parents who helped me. And yeah. this is probably gonna work out for me because my internal working model of the world is you know, there's some tough things, but over, you know, and I had this horrible thing happen to me, but overall it's, it's a pretty, been a, a pretty secure place for me, you know? So that's the view of the world. Um, the view of self, I deserve to be helped. Mm -hmm. Like I shouldn't have to live like this. Like I'm going to find someone that can help make this better as opposed <laughs> to maybe an insecure attachment or even an unre unresolved attachment. Um, where they're like suspicious of you. They learned from an early age, um, maybe I shouldn't trust you. Maybe you're not that reliable, James, right? 
So, right. you know, I've learned in the world, like really hard stuff happens and people weren't always there for me when it did. So this is going to impact the therapy relationship and what they're expecting Absolutely. from you, right? Absolutely. Oh, definitely. I felt that too. You know, there has to be that. Well, that's why no matter what form of therapy you're practicing, but especially trauma treatments, that therapeutic alliance, that trusting relationship yes. is so important. And it's going to be something that develops over the course of treatment. There's mm -hmm. going to be ruptures, repairs, mm -hmm. all of that mm -hmm. stuff. And it's all important part of the work too. Mm -hmm. And based on someone's <laughs> attachment history, it's, it's often easier or harder for them yes. to develop that. Absolutely. And so, you know, again, this interface, are we going to go into trauma treatment when you don't even really trust me? Like how, right. I, this is my right. worry about some of the manualized approaches and the idea, okay, like we just like do this and we do like 12 sessions. Well, I think all of us know therapy 101 is yeah. you have to develop therapeutic rapport. Absolutely. Well, I don't, Absolutely. I don't really care if there's an evidence base for your therapy. Uh, I don't like if the person doesn't trust you, it's not going to work. And uh -oh. I would, I would say anybody. Yeah. I always tell like students that I teach at the university of Denver, if they're telling you that this is just a model that you can just do and it's fast and you can like bypass all the trust building, don't trust it. It's snake oil. Um, mm -hmm. or they're explaining it wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, the only cat, I, I would give one caveat. And I think sometimes maybe for single episode trauma, you know, a good dose of EMDR can work for single episode trauma. Like I Absolutely. was in a car accident and now I, I can't get in my car, you know, but when we're talking relational trauma, like you know, it's not take longer. Yes. Relational yeah, trauma yeah. or, or, um, trauma by someone that you trusted or complex trauma yes. or developmental trauma, all of these things, not, I was caught in a hurricane and now I'm really scared. Uh, like that's very different than somebody that you trusted, um, being involved in the trauma. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think in terms of this interface, um, my belief is in a way we work on secure attachment and connection first. Yes. And then that allows trauma treatments to be more effective. So that's mm -hmm. another way I see that interface, you know, so, so, so like we're talking about a lot of things. We're talking about a protective factor against developing PTSD. We're talking about, you know, an internal working model that yes. makes you more amenable to, to treatment, even if you do develop PTSD. So, um, so there's just, you know, there's really a lot of, of different ways this interfaces. And then, you know, thirdly, the relationship we were talking about, like, yes. Yes. um, the trauma treatment, if there's not a trusting, safe relationship is, is going to have limited utility. It, exactly. And it, 
And it, like when I do EMDR, for example, with somebody who has, I mostly do attachment-based trauma with EMDR. I usually mm-hmm. let them know, like, we're going to talk for a while <laughs> before we, we do yes. any of the trauma. Because I exactly what you're saying, I want to assess what's their internal working model. Uh, yes. What's their experience with other people? Um, yes. How build that trust? Because no matter what modality you're using for trauma work, you're going into such a deep place. And the brain, especially if it doesn't, hasn't learned to trust people or discern who it can and cannot trust. Yeah. It's going to be really hard to go to those deep places with, with a stranger, even a stranger you're paying. Yes. Yeah. Cause I think of that sometimes, you know, um, you know, one of the things that we often say in EMDR, you know, what's coming up for you now. Yeah. And, you know, you kind of wonder, I mean, I even thought this in the training, you know, when you, you practice an example with someone else, I'm like, I don't I don't know if I'm going to tell him what's coming up. I, mean, I, don't, know. Right, exactly. I don't know this person. Exactly. And like, I don't know where I want this going in the training. You know, so, so you know, uh, that what they share that's coming up may not be as, as authentic or vulnerable right. if they don't feel that safety and connection. Exactly. It's like I was very lucky in the training. I went with a friend, <laughs> but oh, good. not everybody. Not everybody gets that. And I was just like, we we did that intentionally because we knew we'd have to be practicing on each other. Yeah. And it's just like, how do you, even though like we were practicing a low level trauma, it's still like right. you just don't know what it's connected to. Right. And I definitely right. had stuff come up where I was like, oh, I don't want to share this with right. people I don't know. <laughs> yes. 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 So <laughs> yeah. 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 So. So I think all of those things, you know, are so important and that, you know, that we, that we, that we first, like first keep them separate in, in our mind. Oh, another thing I really want to say that I haven't said yet, attachment is a developmental process that we all go through. Yes. Yes. Trauma is something that happens that can interfere or impede on that too. So, so trauma, um, a traumatic event, a ser- like a really serious traumatic event that's, that, um, that's possibly, you know, creating PT. I shouldn't even say an event because that's another thing about trauma. It's not really about the event. It's like right. what the story that's attached to you, sometimes based on your history um, of what it means to you. But, um, but, but what I wanted to say is, you know, we were kind of talking about how attachment can like lay the groundwork for trauma work, uh, secure, secure attachment. But we also, one could be securely attached um, and a traumatic event could, you know, dismantle some of that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so um, we, we need to be aware of that also that it can, it can come in that way. But I do, I want to reiterate again that attachment is a developmental process that we all go through yes. and develop adaptive strategies as a part of that process. Where trauma is um, events that may or may not happen to some people. Um, and it, so again, I see like the, the, the people getting all that kind of mixed up. <laughs> um, yes, yeah. yes. And think and that other thing too that one trauma to one person may not necessarily be a trauma to another depending on the history the why like it can be traumatic for like I know with a lot of my clients it can be traumatic when 
in a sense, when your parents are repeatedly not showing up or repeatedly sending the message, you're not as important as work yes. or a sibling yes. or someone else. Yes. But for some people, it may not be as traumatic because they have this foundation, this wiring where they know, oh, I still mm -hmm. matter. And I think yes. of that too, the view of the view yes. of self, view of others, view of the world. Yes. You know, even yeah. going back, okay, so I was mocking a haircut. Uh, well, you know, what if when you misbehaved, you were tied in a chair when you were little and parents mm. cut your hair in this horrible way as a form of punishment that scared you and humiliated you and you were made fun of at school? Okay, so a, a, this is a good example how, okay, a haircut after all could be traumatic, right? Even yes. though I was sort of mocking that as, 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 as a trauma earlier and that it's not what happens. It's often what it awakens in you from your own yeah. history. Um, you know, we have that idea trauma is not being stuck in the past. It's not being able to be in the present. So like, right. I can't, there's something so similar about what's happening right now that it's kicking me back to then. And so I can't yes. tell the difference. You know, yes. um, I can't, I can't, it, uh, if we use uh, war trauma for an example, you know, when I hear the, <clears throat> the car backfiring, that sound is so similar that I am now like put back into the implicit memories that I hold physiologically inside of me are triggered. And it, yes. it's similar enough that I now feel like I'm in a war zone, even though I'm walking down Main Street and something just happened to a car. So like I lose that and I'm catapulted sort of, you know, um, my um, physiology is yes. activated um, and this these feelings of fear and helplessness and all of that are, are activated to where I can't separate that this is I'm in a different moment that this is yes. not happening. Um, it's similar enough that it makes the person feel that way. And that's, you know, a big part of our work with them is to help them separate that. Absolutely. And, and I do think that that even the haircut is a good example because like what you described as somebody being for which is a thing that some people you know that happened and yes. that is an actual trauma and they're experiencing a real tra traumatized reaction a trauma response to it where right. then you know right. somebody who just like had a bad haircut or didn't like the right. color or how, how the bangs right. made them right. look you know right it's we don't want people to diminish real traumatic experiences. Right. And, um, and so yeah. if we also go back to that, the physiological state that child was in, I'm afraid, I'm humiliated. They have something sharp. Um, I'm, they're angry and, and their whole physiology is elevated. They're in back brain, they're in fight, flight, yeah. freeze. They're in, in terror and helplessness. Okay. Yes. Terror and helplessness we know are key factors in imprinting trauma inside of our bodies that can be reactivated later. So totally different thing. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I hope that this has helped, you know, first of all, help us delineate a bit yeah. about attachment, the research, how it manifests itself trauma, how it's separate, what it is, what it isn't, and how the two of them interface 
um, it, perhaps in a protective, um, as a protective factor with secure attachment, or perhaps um, making the, the trauma more difficult to treat because of an insecure or attachment and difficulty trusting that they can be helped by the therapist. This has been great. I love the examples you give and just you really take these because they're pretty complex things, but it's nice how you talk about it just to kind of help simplify it, make it more digestible. Just, you know, what is attachment? What's trauma? How do they come together? Because like you started off saying, there's so much misinformation out there and so much conflation. And Yes, yes, yes. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for um, talking today. And it's been really wonderful. Of course. Thank you so much, Karen. It's great having you. Once again, another big thank you to Karen Doyle Buckwalter for sitting down with me to talk more about attachment and specifically about how attachment and trauma interface. If you haven't checked out any of Karen's work, definitely take a look at the link in the episode description to where you can find more information about her, her books, her podcasts, and everything else that Karen does and offers. I just really appreciated talking about how attachment is a protective factor when we're talking about trauma. And just all of the other important clarifications and topics that Karen brought up today. I hope you found it just as interesting and as helpful. Take care. Talk to you next time. Thank you.